Well, welcome everyone to uh, what basically is a book report. Uh, this time we're talking about The Devil's Historian. Okay, okay. So that's my source for this episode, but in actuality we're not really doing a book report. See, I'm a medievalist. I love the medieval period and find it fascinating to learn about it. But, see, the period has some problems, let's say. From white supremacists, to incels, to fascists, to religious extremists, all have used the medieval period and taken up medieval symbolism to support their hatred. But how? And where does this come from? This time, on Why Are You Talking About This? Nerd. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Wait Hat Nerd. My name is William, and I will be your Medieval Times-looking-ass host today as we travel down the rabbit hole that is racism, sexism, and homophobia-slicked hole that is medievalism. But before we do that, I would like to thank you for listening to the show. It means the world to me that my voice is ever so gently being drizzled into your ear like a foot fetishist drizzling honey over someone's toes. And if any part of your body just reacted positively to that, you're in defeat. Sorry, I make the rules. But anyways, make sure to send in stuff for episode 20, which is coming up really soon. Uh, if you haven't heard, episode 20 is when I look back on the other 19 episodes and talk about some stuff that I got wrong. Things I've learned since then, and some updates. And I'm also looking for some things that the show after episode 20, so if you have ideas, send those in. Also, like, comment, review, and share the show. And I do also accept throwing bricks through the windows of your enemies with the URL written on the side to be sharing. Uh, but let's get to it. Also, don't throw bricks. All right. So we're going to be talking about the dangers of medievalism today. But obviously, before we do that, we have to uh, talk about what medievalism even is in the first place. So medievalism is the study of or hobby of the Middle Ages or topics related to the Middle Ages, particularly in some hyperfixated aspect of it. Uh, for example, while I really enjoy the medieval period for its interesting politics, the lives of people at the time, and how much I would rather be in their shoes, uh, and stuff like herbalism books from the period, I was introduced to medievalism and attached to it from the angle of the weapons, armor, and warfare. Uh, other people, though, will hyperfix on other things, like 
you know, in college I took a class on the medieval period, and amongst the many things we read, one of them was from a scholar whose entire field of study in the Middle Ages was on the technology and techniques of the textile and fabric industries. Yeah, that's how fixated we get sometimes. Okay, but with that in mind, if you are really horny for definitions or don't know what the Middle Ages are, let's also define that. See, this is a period of human history between the fall of Rome and the early modern era that covers an area from Iceland to Maritania, uh, if you don't know where that is, look it up, eastward to modern India, north again to Russia, and then back over to Iceland. Uh, so, big square over Europe and a lot of Africa and Asia. However, this area is also sometimes expanded further south to modern South Africa and east to Japan. So this is basically most, if not all, of Eurasia and most of Africa between the periods of 476 AD and 1948 AD. 1948. Uh, <laughs> sorry, I'm a little bit dyslexic sometimes. Uh, 1498. Although some people also include up through the 17th century. And I'm one of them because the 1600s still had plenty of stuff like castles, plate armor, and the youth of... And the use of firearms wasn't quite the number one weapon yet. Getting there, but not quite. Now, you see, this is very, very vague. And why is that? Well, because there's a lot of opinion on when and where this happened. A lot of people place it solely in Europe, but where in Europe? I mean, for a lot of people, without thinking about it, they'll say the British Isles... France, Germany, and the Nordic countries. But that's not very accurate, because these nations interacted with others further afield. So then, you know, you include places like Spain and Italy. But then they interacted with the Moors, the Islamic Caliphates, Eastern Europe, etc., and then they in turn interact with other people. So, wherever you put your focus is really dependent on your area of study, area of interest, or what you think is either a more quote-unquote pure form of life, or a more quote-unquote barbaric form of life, depending on the narrative that you're trying to sell. Now, timing is similar. For the case of the 1400s, it's because there were a ton of worldwide changes during this period, including the fall of Constantinople, the Renaissance, and Timurid era, eras beginning, the end of feudalism in Europe, and the discovery of America. But the 17th century is the era of the extinction of medieval practices like plate armor and the hegemony of many nations we know today rather than the system of political connections in the medieval period. So, as you can see, already the Middle Ages are kind of poorly defined. But a lot of people forget that. That what you're looking at is the history and culture of one to two mega continents making up the majority of the landmass on Earth over a period of somewhere between 1,000 and 1,200 years. There's no single universal truth about this period. Rather, what we say about it says a lot more about us than it does about the time. You know, very similar to analogies. Just blew your mind there, didn't I? But, very important to this, and that, that's about the analogies thing. Analogies say more about you than they do about uh, the thing you're making an analogy about. Uh, but, very important to this discussion, is the distinction of the past versus history. Now, if you're the layman, aka a dummy, 
these are the same thing. However, if you're a historian, they're quite different. See, history is the story we tell each other about the past and is usually whatever information survives or able to glean from surviving records or artifacts. And this carries a lot of biases and personal beliefs. And oftentimes, not even intentionally. We're all just dumb little apes and our brains inject our own narratives into things just kind of automatically. However, history can also be created and used as justification for action or inaction or to appeal to people with concepts like simplicity, nostalgia, and returning to a better and simpler life. Or to go in the opposite direction and weaponize history and call it not only awful, but also a terrible mistake. Which is very useful when you're telling people that actually our modern atrocities are are just fine when you compare them to the medieval period. Which, uh, no. As in how life works, it's not a contest to see who can get to the bottom first. However, the past are the literal events that happened. And we don't have those. Because think, even when events are recorded, either being written or in the more modern ages, shot on video, why are they being recorded? And by who? Very rarely are people accidentally recording events, especially when writing them. I mean, you don't wake up from a four-day bender with an accurate written portrayal of the Battle of Hastings on your desk in your handwriting. And even if you did, why would it survive to the modern day? I mean, even the records of the past are created with bias, so in that way, the past is just entirely gone, and all we have left, and all we have left is the history. But, uh, yeah, with that depressing existential dread in your brain... Uh, let's talk about the actual dangers of medievalism. So, there's three ways that medievalism is dangerous. The first is the use of the past to justify things currently. Basically saying things like, you know, things were better back in the day, and clearly the reason for that is that uh, this time period that exists only in my brain, where everyone loved Jesus and no one was gay, actually happened. So they take the current climate and say, well, I mean, obviously the world is a shit show, and then they advocate going back to that time that didn't exist. So they take the current climate and say, well, obviously the world is a shit show, and then they advocate going back, you know, to a time that didn't exist that they made up. Now, the second is the use of history in the past to justify things, but in the opposite way. Like saying, hey guys, you know what was great? We used to massacre Romani people for no fucking reason, and also women stay in the fucking house and accepted that their husbands would just sometimes hit them. Oh, that never happened? Fuck you. And then a bunch of incels and people that really want to massacre an ethnicity and hit women cheer. And the third is confusing real life for fantasy, or propaganda for real life, and believing things like racial homogeny, inevitable culture at war, and other real fucked up things. You know, like drinking from the skull of your enemies. This is pure fantasy. Because one, medieval people weren't psychopaths. But also because, holy shit, is a skull the most impractical thing to drink out of? There's so many holes. And also, like, if you sip it from the back uh, and you have it upside down, you have the teeth in the front smacking you in the face. Or if you go the other way, you're getting weird, like, tooth-on-tooth action. Or, I mean, if it's cut open from the top, 
then you have the line dribbling out of the hole for the optic nerves or you know dribbling down the spinal cord hole. Not that I've considered it, but I mean, okay. This is all really general, so we're going to just look at some more uh, common overarching examples. So first is the idea that medieval people lived really brutal, nasty, short lives. The idea being that everyone was sick, covered in mud and shit, wore black and brown all the time because color was only for the rich people, medical treatment was done with a mallet and especially dull and dirty knife, everyone was always doing or planning a rape and murder, kings would smash armies together just to watch the blood go everywhere, and everyone died by the age of 35. But let's break that down. See, beginning with your life expectancy. Uh, the figure of 35 years old is actually from birth. So when you're born, odds are you'll die before you're 35. But here's the thing. That's actually not unique to the Middle Ages. As a matter of fact, the modern figure of 72 years old worldwide is an outlier. And throughout most of human history is fluctuated from like 18 years old to 45 years old at birth. Because giving birth has always been a dangerous prospect. A lot can go wrong and kill the mother, the baby, or both. And until the modern day, there wasn't a whole lot we could do about it. I mean, even in the modern day, there's sometimes not much we can do about it. Even in places with a whole lot of medical development. But assuming that you're born fine and survive the very weak and vulnerable childhood years where one especially bad flu, falling head first from a tree because children seem to think that they're immortal... A famine runs through your village and only the fatties and the good workers survive because they're built different. Or someone gives you a good stabbing because you're an asshole. You'll actually probably live to be in your 70s. I mean, similar to today. Now, also, medieval people weren't always dirty and covered in grime. And a lot of them wore very bright colors. Because bright colors are pretty and the human body is an eldritch nightmare of gross fluids and smells, and no one likes it. Especially not the person covered in it. So, basically, everyone bathed. The thing is that a lot of people see stuff like bathhouses getting closed down and think that that meant that there was something against bathing. Which wasn't the case. It was just, you know, especially common for people to get finger blasted or get a reach around in the bathhouse, and a lot of the moral authorities, like churches and kings, uh, took an issue with that. And actually, for millennia, people have been bathing, with even some evidence as older than civilization itself to wash our bodies. And in addition, people in the Middle Ages weren't especially sickly or covered in disease. I think about it, for millennia, humanity has struggled to fight disease and sickness, and the Middle Ages were no different. But see, these things actually combine together as to why we think medieval people didn't bathe. Because in the 16th and 17th century, washing became a social faux pas among the rich. Why? Well, because of the spread of syphilis, Christian values including that you should never be naked because God made us all with clothes on, obviously. And the very, very provably, obviously wrong idea that bathing causes disease. It also became a social statement to say that you haven't bathed in months and still smell good, because it indicated that you didn't have to do any kind of hard labor and were therefore rich. But also, 
compared to the colonial period of Europe, disease was much less widespread. Because we aren't taking our, you know, funky white people jock itch and pus cock all over the planet and catching other people's coochie coughs. Also, a lot of people say that medieval medical treatment was barbaric and brutal. And here's the thing. It was. I mean, fuck, man. In order to do heart surgery, they had to take a very sharp knife and peel back all your chest, skin, and muscle, break open your fucking ribs, and then take another very sharp knife and employ some very precise stabbing directly into the thing keeping you alive. Oh, wait. Fuck. Sorry. That's modern heart surgery. Yeah, surgery is incredibly horrific when you describe it exactly as it is. But yes, during the Middle Ages, we didn't have effective anesthesia, there was no germ theory, and we didn't have the precision medical instruments or technology we have now. Which does sound awful, but it's not as bad as a lot of people think. Bone? Bone? I should have learned my lesson from recording Waytat that I need to have my phone on silent while I'm recording. Anyways, uh, because today, while medical treatment is a lot more survivable and also a lot more effective, in fact, much more effective than any other time in human history, middle-age medicine wasn't a bunch of herbs and a few incantations and then bleeding you to death. We knew how to treat cataracts. We knew how to treat a whole lot of wounds and injuries that didn't involve lopping off limbs. We had internal medicine, like we could do actual surgeries on you that would, that I don't want to say work most of the time, that would work, usually. Uh, we also had the beginnings of dentistry, and we were mapping organs, blood vessels, and nerves. And I say or, uh, beginnings of dentistry. Dentistry existed for a long time beforehand, but we were getting to the point in dentistry where we were doing more than, like, pulling teeth and doing, like, minor, like, dental surgeries. Like, we were doing uh, pretty advanced dental surgeries in the Middle Ages. Um, but anyways, all of that is really complicated. And here's the thing. This was also before the heroic age of medicine, which, in my opinion, was a lot more barbaric. And if you aren't familiar, then, I mean, one, you haven't listened to Waytat and shave on you, but also this era of medicine was defined as the period of time where doctors thought disease couldn't spread through them, and also anything goes as long as the patient's life is saved. Meaning, even if they want to die, or don't want treatment, or they have reservations about, you know, their arm getting hacksawed off, the doctor might just do it anyways, regardless of their patient's of their patient's choice. Uh, with dirty hands and no anesthesia. I mean, also, you weren't really allowed to say no to certain treatments. Like, they would force you to do stuff like uh, take morphine, for example, when morphine came around. Yeah, or if you had a brain issue, they'd do everything they could to solve it. And if talking it out and, like, some psychotherapy didn't do it, they might bash you in the head. Uh, they might give you an electric shock, see if that works. Uh, or they might just fucking lobotomize you. So, Middle Ages medicine, while filled with a lot of hocus-pocus gobbledygook, like humoral medicine, you know, strapping a chicken to your leg to avoid the plague, because, you know, obviously the plague will infect a lower order of God's creature if it can, and pray away that syphilis, 
it's no worse than the medical treatments in use for millennia before and for centuries after. Okay, and finally is the violence. See, unlike what a lot of people will tell you, the Middle Ages weren't uniquely violent. I mean, think, we had World War Greece 1, 2, and 3 by this time, and several massive empires that killed millions of people just on the field of battle. There's a biblical psalm about braining your enemy's babies against the wall after burning their city to the ground by for defying God's power, written before Rome was a thing in the Middle East. There's even evidence of cavemen massacring entire tribes execution-style by either braining them with a club or literally stabbing them with the liver until they bled to death. I mean, humans are fucking violent. And a lot of people will feed you the line that we're much better now and a lot more civilized. And sure, maybe in some respects we are, but to say the Middle Ages was the height of war, murder, rape, banditry, and torture is wrong, because torture actually became a lot more popular of a thing during the 17th and 18th century than it ever was during the Middle Ages. And hey, if you want to look at a literal industrial scale of rape and sexual assault, let's look at the modern sex trafficking industry that is rampant everywhere. If you want to talk about bloodshed during war, let's compare the bloodiest conquest of the Middle Ages to the bloodiest war to date in human fucking history. So the Mongol invasion killed about 30 to 40 million people, with sometimes travelers to China reporting seeing a literal mountain of human skulls piled up outside of one particular city. I mean, fucking horrendous, right? Well, that took place over 162 years, or 216,049 deaths per year on average, which... I mean, holy fuck, that is a lot of killing and violence, and obviously is terrible, but the deadliest conflict in human history is World War II, which, if you know the timeline, uh, is a lot more modern. But during World War II, somewhere between 70 to 85 million people died over the course of six years, or about 12,916,666 deaths per year. Now, mind you, of that figure, only 38% of those were soldiers. So we're talking about mostly civilian deaths. And this is from some of the most horrific atrocities and some of the most painful, deadly weapons imaginable, including things like disease experiments, biological warfare, the fucking Shoah, uh, which is another name for the Holocaust, by the way, the one that I prefer using, uh, firebombs that would sometimes suffocate people by sucking all the oxygen out of the air and would also boil rivers people were trying to escape into, um, mass rapes, genocide, and also the power of splitting the fucking atom. And this also discounts modern atrocities committed during, like, Ukrainian war, that's still currently happening, or the habit the U.S. has had for a long time of drone-striking suspected brown people, I mean terrorists, in the Middle East, almost regardless of the collateral damage. In fact, sometimes it really seems like we're aiming for collateral damage. Okay, so that was a lot, but why is this myth proliferated? Well, in some part, because humans kind of innately have a smug sense of superiority of over other people. 
it's a survival mechanism to say that we're actually a lot better off now than we used to because it keeps the existential dread our brain is able to process in check. That's also why a lot of people have like an immortality complex. They're like, oh, I can't possibly be hurt by that because if our brain recognizes that we can, we start to spiral. We tell each other that they live brutal, nasty, short lives in the Middle Ages because it makes us feel good living in the modern day. Which, I will say, that's fine. That part of it isn't too bad of a lie. However, we also use medieval to describe other cultures. Because the implication there is that they're savage, brutal murderers that don't understand medicine or how to bathe. Or, I mean, the other part of why this myth has proliferated is to, is to excuse modern atrocities. You know, like torture. It's pretty common to say that torture was common in the Middle Ages, and as people are like, oh yeah, we don't do that anymore. We rub our hands together deviously and then torture false confessions out of innocent Muslim prisoners in Guantanamo Bay using cutting-edge psychological warfare tactics to permanently make them unable to function in human society. This also excuses modern violence and lulls us into a false sense of security that things like brutal rape and murder don't happen anymore, or war crimes don't happen anymore, despite the fact that we have practically industrialized the process of committing war crimes, rape, and murder. Okay. So, after spending a long time on that myth, let's go to the next one. That being that medieval people were ignorant and uneducated. The thought is that medieval people didn't know nearly the depth or width of knowledge that we do now, and that they were easily deceived, controlled, and superstitious, and incredibly religious, and prone to shouting witchcraft and turning you into a vagina-scented candle at the slightest provocation. But let's talk about this. I mean, firstly, yes, the medieval world didn't know very much compared to us now. Even from the Middle Ages to the Renaissance, a lot of stuff was discovered that no one had even considered. I mean, the field of microbiology had massively developed. Uh, we learned about light and gravity, how those work. We developed heliocentric models of the solar system. Uh, we also figured out how to make really, really good boomsticks. And just to name a few things. And that's even before you get to the wonders of the internet, splitting of the atom, or scientific calculations to prove the existence of massive gaping orifices in reality that absorb all light that are usually about 5 million times bigger than our entire planet and concept of reality itself before we took a fucking picture of one. But all of this isn't to say the medieval people were stupid. Their brains were the same brains as they are today. They knew how the world worked. They were curious and clever and came up with a ton of wild shit. They were just as capable as we are today and just as capable of intellectualism. And also myths like medieval people thinking the world was flat is entirely untrue. They knew it was round. In fact, it was common knowledge since Aristotle. And not only did Muslims use it to calculate the, the distance to Mecca, but sailors used the knowledge to navigate and the laymen that could read or have swords read to them could read the, of the world being round. I mean, we've known for a long time. 
Oh, also, there's the myth that uh, Christopher Columbus um, sailed to prove that the world was round. He did not. Uh, he sailed out because he did the calculations and thought, ah, it's pear-shaped with a nipple on the top. So I can cut across the narrow part to get to India. Uh, a well, Sorry, this is a side note. A well-established, well-known, well-understood country, and then he got to the shores and was like, oh, people, kill them. What the fuck? Anyways, Christopher Columbus is not a hero. He's a, he's a fucking monster. And an idiot. He was stupid, too. He didn't know what the fuck he was talking about or what he was doing. 90% of the time, he went anywhere. He thought he was in India until the day he fucking died. Anyway. God, what a fucking dumbass. Anyways. Uh, speaking of literacy, while it was much lower than it is today, it was still more common than you think. Because reading and writing is a really useful way to store information for long periods of time and to pass it to others without, you know, using any of our uh, electrical, electric lump of gum and fat juices up here. And again, while the number was fairly low, uh, most people that needed to be literate were literate. Or in other words, people that had the money or time enough to do more than just have subsistence labor. And also, I mean, sure, I like the written word and my soggy fucking brain pan leans very heavily on it because the part that's supposed to be filled with memorized information is instead filled with hentai and all the cringy things have ever been unfortunate enough to live to regret. The written word isn't supreme. It's not the only way to pass down useful information. You can use stuff like oral histories, hands-on learning, cooperative storytelling. The reason why we assumed the medieval people didn't know how to do anything is because us in the West jerk our dicks around to the written language like a horny teenager on Wattpad. And a lot of Westerners, throughout the period of colonization and thinking we're hotter shit than the contents of a Florida, of a Florida porta potty saw written language as the sole requirement to be civilized. But if you think written language is supreme, why are you listening to a fucking podcast? Why are you listen to the radio or music? Why do you watch TV? Why do you talk to people? Just text and read books, you dumb little fucking nerd. Meanwhile, this chads are going to be standing around spouting off bullshit that will never be repeated in the same way ever again by anyone else in history. Get fucked. I digress. The thing is, too, is that a lot of people didn't even really need to know how to read and write. Why? Because, yes, books existed. Obviously. Duh. And so things like parchment and ink. But these were hella expensive. Because books were transcribed by hand, and parchment and ink were materials that both weren't exceptionally in high demand and also weren't really the easiest things to make. So most people couldn't afford to use them anyways, or there was no need to make a lot of it. So there was no reason to learn a skill that you won't be able to use. But what do we see in places with access to books or that need written language for something? That's right. Higher literacy rates. 
because people, even at that time, not only enjoyed reading, but understood that it was a skill that they would need sometimes. And with the printing press, as things like books and magazines became cheaper, literacy rose significantly. Uh, This also isn't in my notes, but I do want to mention, travelers at the time often taught themselves how to read. So, like, if you're going anywhere, you obviously understand, like, well, shit, I'm not going to be in this fucking town forever, so I gotta learn how to read. Like, it... Anyways, uh, why why do we say this myth? Well, again, this is a smug sense of satisfaction moment. But also, and this is going to be a common one today, racism. Because the idea is that the world just kind of stopped progressing and everyone got real fucking dumb for about a thousand years while Europe got back to his position of supremacy between Rome and the new quote-unquote enlightened area of colonialism. Which obviously isn't true, but by saying that actually we were a bunch of dummies during the Middle Ages minimizes the contributions of other cultures and ethnicities to the world by basically saying, well, sure, but I mean, we were dumb back then anyways, or, well, but we only really care about what Europeans do. I mean, also, this is a way to shift focus away from modern failures in the education system by saying, well, in the context of history, we're actually doing a much better job now. Which is true, yes, but also it doesn't mean that we can get away with, you know, not teaching kids how to do basic tasks or, you know, really motherfucking their brains and giving them permanent burnout. Okay, so the next myth is that medieval people had no individuality. The thought is that people during this era had no self-determination or power and that all the history happened from the powerful tyrannical kings and overreaching authoritarian Catholic church and local nobilities keeping the poor peasants deeply repressed and stealing all their money. Which you know the pattern by now. So, first of all, in the Middle Ages, kings and other nobles were actually limited in their power. Why is that? Well, because they relied on a series of alliances and loyalties between themselves and other wealthy landowners. So, for example, let's say that you're the King of England. Uh, Congratulations, by the way, my lord. Uh... But you don't actually own England. Because that's a whole lot of fucking land. And oh my god, that's an insane thing to try to do. Instead, you own whatever land you and your personal retinue can control. Which is a good chunk, but nothing crazy. But good for you, your family has a long... But good for you, your family has a long-running alliance with four other nobles that own enough land to kind of strong-arm another, let's say, 15 into an alliance with you and them. And all 20 of you are pretty chill with the 14 nobles that control basically enough of Wales to essentially own Wales. So now your 34 nobles get cozied up with a bunch of Irish and Scottish nobles and make friends with them for a grand alliance of 41. And because you have kids, you quickly marry them off to the children of the remaining Isles nobles and a few in France and Germany to expand your holdings to basically the entire British Isles and a few places in France and Germany. So now, you have like 70 to 75 nobles that are kind of basically working for you because enough of them decide that you were the one in charge. And if you think like that, and if you think that that sounds like a tenuous hold on power, oh boy, wait for tax season. 
because rich people don't like paying taxes. So the amount of strong-arming you have to do is nuts. Meaning that taxes weren't actually collected very often and was mostly on a per-need basis. And you also don't usually tax your people actual money because the amount of effort and money it costs to convince some soldiers to you know, throw Granny out of her rocking chair and pry the pennies from her hand isn't really worth it. So kings didn't collect taxes super often, and from the people, they usually took goods and services like working his land as the tax. Because ultimately, that's a lot more valuable than, like, again, Granny's handful of pennies. And on top of that, nobles didn't necessarily have a lot of time or... I mean, really even the desire sometimes to authoritatively rule over their land. As long as they kept their holdings in good order, they didn't give a single fuck what the people did. So because of that, a lot of settlements had democratic councils, elders, mayors, or even sometimes overseers from their lord's personal retinue or one of their relatives to keep things running. And all of that means that the government operated in vastly different ways across a single kingdom or empire, because each region is under a different lord, essentially in its own micro-government. And that's even denying places like Italy that had, like, city-state republics just all over the place. And the church had a lot of similar issues, and we'll talk more about that one specifically later, but while, yes, the Catholic Church had a lot of power, it's hard to use it when the communication to Rome from London takes not only traveling about 1,900 kilometers, but also crossing the fucking English Channel, and traveling through at least three kingdoms depending on your route, and mountains, and also dense forests. So for the most part, you'd be on your own when you get sent somewhere. Meaning that you had a lot of leeway in how you preached. Meaning there were a lot of variables in church doctrine as well. Now what all this means for the layperson is that as long as you had the money, no one hated you, you weren't being too big of a piece of shit, and the thing you were planning on doing wouldn't make you a piece of shit, and you could basically do whatever you want. But why is that? Well, because medieval society was much more collective than we are now, but not from the top down, from bottom up. Because, you know, you had to be there for each other and help each other to survive, because the world is a rough place. You know, like if someone gets injured and can't work their fields, that means that your community overall has less food. Which might mean the difference between life and death for your entire community if, you know, like, you're short three bushels of wheat, and now everyone's fucking starving this winter. So you help them by helping them with their fields or tending to their wounds. Especially especially because if you got sick or injured or forgot your lunch or needed to help, or needed help fixing something, you would hope that they'd be there for you. I mean, also, if you live in a village, you probably grew up with everyone there. I mean, it was very, very common to live basically in the same community your entire life, or most of your life. So, you know, you don't want to see these people get hurt or killed because you know them. They're your friends. They're your family. So, I mean, really, medieval society was heavily focused on social politics and social interactions on every level. Meaning that, yes, there's actually quite a bit of individuality in the medieval world, but, you know, it's tempered by having a reliance on friends, allies, and community. 
So then what's the point of this myth? Well, to prop up tyrants. Basically say, hey, it used to be worse when people question your shit, like, you know, being a sex pest or rampant corruption or getting very reasonably angry that they can't afford to fucking eat and they have no future. All, or, alternatively, to call someone else a tyrant. By calling someone a medieval lord, you're implying that they're an overbearing, controlling tyrant. But as you can see, that's not true. I mean, sure, it's still insulting, because it's basically saying that you suck shit at getting anything done. But these two use the myth to essentially delegitimize people while making your own failings seem like it's not a big deal, because, you know, other people in the past have been worse. Which is a lot like being arrested for doing a killing, and your defense in court is just to step onto the stand and say, Ted Bundy, and nothing else. Alright, next is the idea that all the important people were straight men. And, uh, no, that's not true at all. But a lot of people act like the Middle Ages was a time where the menfolk, the straight menfolk, did all the heavy lifting, like farming, fighting, smithing, and ruling, while the women sat quietly in the corner, covering their gross, disgusting fucking ankles, until their husband won some sex. But, obviously, this is false. Women during the Middle Ages did a lot of important and cool shit. Women, unlike what's often portrayed, actually had a pretty good amount of self-determination and could do things like run businesses. It was actually fairly common for women not only to do traditionally feminine, at least by today's standards, things like being seamstresses and artists, but also do things that were all hands on deck, like farming in the fields or doing like home construction. Actually, some traditionally masculine things like working as blacksmiths or as fully-fledged and well-respected queens that held the same power as a lot of kings. I mean, also, the thought of a woman blacksmith just absolutely snapping me in half like a kick-ass bar is going to be in my mind for a long time. Uh, but, it, anyways, women did actually have options. And, you know, while it was expected that they needed to be married, and oftentimes who they were married to wasn't their choice, uh, just like today, not every choice in husband uh was a total asshole with more red flags than a Soviet parade, and even some of them would be like me and probably prefer to be called a good boy by a dominant wife. Um, so it can be assumed that at least some amount of marriages weren't controlling, if not good. Or, you know, if a woman doesn't want to get married, she can join a convent, which was at the same, which was at the time considered similar to, if not literally, marrying God. And while you did have to have a Christian life of discipline and devotion and care for the sick and needy and be celibate, I mean, you're surrounded by other women, and it also wasn't terrible if you believe in God, and it sounds halfway appealing. So, hey, the very specific demographic of listeners who are Christian lesbians that like to hear me talk uh, and listen to nerd podcasts, how about you join a convent? Sounds like a great place for you. Um, however, this... All isn't to say being a woman was fine and dandy. I mean, first of all, there's still a lot of sexism and violence. I mean, from the church and folk Christianity basically pinning the entire fall of man and every sin imaginable on women to something that continues today, like discounting the 
capabilities and expertise of women. It also included, obviously, uh, as I was uh, saying with the marriage thing, a complete lack of choices. I because mean, your two choices, really what I said there was uh, join a convent where you will be single for life and basically married to Jesus Horsecock Christ, or uh, someone picks someone for you to marry and then you were just kind of their property. Not good choices. Um, or, you know, even worse, a lot of crimes against women weren't taken nearly as seriously as even they are now. Which is still not very seriously. Especially abuse towards your own wife or daughters. I mean, sexual assault also wasn't taken as seriously. I was some places putting the punishment to be a fine, and other times requiring you to just straight up face your attacker in court. And this means a lot of rapists weren't punished. However, in other areas, uh, the hatred of sexual assault really showed through the laws with uh, things like execution, fair, or castration, also fair, uh, with some records showing castration being done by heating up a hot iron and shoving it in your pee hole, which I'm going to say, deserved, fair. Uh, <laughs> I hope... I hope it's a twisty hot iron that's pokey and also not shaped correctly. Uh, and regardless of if you were punished, it's also fairly common for these rapists uh, to be ostracized, assuming that the woman was more trusted than the man. Of course, the implication there is that if she was less trusted, court of public opinion was on his side. And unlike today, it would be perfectly fine and normal to attack her and, like, torture her for lying. Yeah. Yeah, still bad. Okay. Get away from the heaviness. We also have sexualities. So, while the modern day, it's been a motherfucker to get people to recognize anything more than gay, straight, and bisexual, and even then, just barely, if you really twist their arm about it, different sexualities were also still recognized in the medieval period. You know, while men and women had to be married to each other, it wasn't super out of the question for people to be queer. In fact, until the 14th century, the church didn't even particularly give a single fuck if you were queer, as long as you were having babies, or you stayed celibate and joined a convent. Uh, or a monastery. And also, gender could bend and flex, and there oftentimes was some kind of bend. I mean, a lot of people at the time, too, didn't have the idea that someone who's trans is, like, breaking Christian values. Instead, the thought at the time was, well, I mean, God made them how God made them. Who am I to question God? Which is the question you needed to ask if you think that trans people are against God and nature. Who are you to say that? Do you know what God thinks? Are you, Do you have the hubris, the fucking hubris, to think that you know what God is thinking and why he did that? Anyways, in Western Europe before the 14th century, the big problem people had with being trans or non-binary or like 
not fitting into the gender binary was with legalities. How so? Well, because they assumed a gender binary and secular law had some portions that were dependent on your on your gender. So secular law was fucking pissed that people didn't pick one because man, are Western Europeans horny for nothing like they're horny for a category. So then why is this spread? Well, to reduce women to background players in the story of history. Because then, the people doing it can prove that they weren't important back then, and are therefore not important now. Or that, you know, these fucking women are getting all uppity nowadays. Uh, meaning that when someone tells you that women didn't do anything in history, what they're trying to imply is that men are better than women, because men do things. And basically, that's that's really just boiling down to reducing the power of women. And the straight washing? Similar, but by denying the presence of queer people in history, you can reframe them as some modern and immoral change to world history as a sign of civilization going way too far and getting close to a hedonistic degradation into the eventual collapse of all Western civilization. But then we have the myth that medieval Europe was white and Christian. And this comes from religious extremism and racism. Basically, the thought is that Europe is its own separate... <laughs> Basically, the thought is that Europe is its own separate hegemonic culture and is entirely unconnected from the rest of the world and is quote-unquote pure and has a high population of white people with zero diversity. Which, ultimately is to say that the reason why everything sucks now is multiracial, multicultural, multireligious communities and not the rapidly degrading capitalist system we forced the world into combined with our combined with out of control climate change and various mental and physical health crises that are hard to do anything about and also very difficult to conceptualize without having a panic attack. But in reality not only were people from the Middle East but as far south into Africa as even like the Western Cape near Asia, including India, and to the Far East, as far as Japan, all in Europe. And also, depending on how far you think the Vikings got, maybe even to the Americas, with potentially, with potential slaves, traders, and spouses from North American tribes being brought back to Europe. Although that, that one's a little bit more questionable, because the Vikings, I think they called them, like, scaldings? Which is wildling, and implies like, oh fuck, don't go, don't go there. They'll just fucking kill you. Uh, <laughs> um, but anyways, um, the other thing is that if you're in an area with like pilgrimage routes or trade routes, which, I mean, let's be honest, just about fucking everywhere, this diversity wouldn't even really be all that weird. I mean, sure, being in Scotland and seeing like a black person would be the talk of the town for a while, but it wouldn't be like everyone would stop their day and be like, holy fuck, what is up with that guy, and why is his skin so dark? And it's even less weird if you're in, like, a trade hub, like, in a, the Italian peninsula in, like, a trade city, or on a coastal city in Greece, basically anywhere, or near the Iberian Straits, then you're probably going to be used to seeing people of all different shapes, sizes, and colors, and not even really notice or care. 
But what about religion? Well, similarly, there was a lot more religious diversity than we give the period credit for. Not only Christian sects, but Muslim and Jewish ones as well, and also pagans cavorting around in rural areas pretend to be good Christians when the pastor's in town, like you pretend your girlfriend doesn't peg you during Thanksgiving dinner. And to the east, we also have evidence of faiths like Hinduism and Buddhism reaching Eastern Europe, and there's some dubious things about it getting further than that, but uh, uh, but just taking Christianity as an example, you didn't just have the Catholics and the Protestants. There was very little communication between churches, you know, like we talked about earlier, and a lot of churches and shrines and temples were kind of just left to their own devices. I mean, there was meaning there wasn't a lot of interpretive consistency in scripture or consistent practices across different regions. And also Abrahamic religions, Christianity especially, because it's the one that's more about feeling God's love than studying scripture and following the rules, tends to adopt local customs and beliefs and edit them to fit it into the faith to make it spread faster and easier and more safely for the preacher. But also Hinduism and Buddhism do the same thing. Meaning that if you travel between villages, they might have vastly different methods of worship or beliefs. Like say you have one group that takes the original interpretation of Satan from the Torah, Hasatan, as an agent of God, and the other sees him as the devil. So in one village, because Satan takes the form of a, certain, of a serpent to trick Adam and Eve, they might see that as a test from God that we failed. And so they're cool with snakes being around because, you know, they're a reminder that we really fucked it up. While the other village sees them as the scions of the devil and kills snakes on sight for the same reason but flipped. And the origins of that might literally be that the first village originally had a pagan religion that worshipped snakes, and rather than destroying their culture, the local Catholic sent to convert them just said, well, you know, God's actually pretty chill with the snake. I mean, this isn't to say that things were all good. Obviously fucking not. It was very common for the Jewish people especially to be scapegoated for the powers that be by forcing them into doing things like debt collection, and then when people got pissy that people were collecting on their debts or making them pay taxes, uh, they'd execute or banish the Jews and say, oh, it was all their fault. Which is just one of the many many, many medieval atrocities committed on them. Okay. So why is this one set? Well, nationalism, racism, and stupidity. Nationalism and racism, because nationalists and racists rely on people seeing a single, easily identifiable trait or group of traits to rally around as the true members of their group. Meaning that wasps, white, Anglo-Saxon Protestants make that the defining feature, being white and Protestant. So, how do they give that legitimacy? They lie to you and tell you that actually white people have had their own distinct identity since the Middle Ages, and now these fucking liberals with their pronouns and colored hair and sexy, sexy bodies I want to suck and fuck them too afraid that it makes me gay are trying to destroy that. And also a lot of Christians really don't want to be chill with other religions because, assumedly, their entire personality is being a douche canoe, so they want to shove their religion down everyone's throat, especially if they look vaguely European, and also claim Christianity as a white person thing, 
despite the fact that it was created in the Middle East, and also actively preaches everyone can follow Christ. Also, the stupidity is that sometimes people just fucking forget that the rest of the world existed in the Middle Ages, and are like, well, we have ancient Rome, and then we're going to talk about Europe power hour, and then the next era, we're going to talk about when we colonized everywhere and killed a bunch of uh, non-white people. And expect that to be, like, the full scope of history that you need to know to be out in the world. Okay. And, my God, this is long, but second to last is nationalism. So, in places with medieval history, like Germany and the UK, medievalism is used in nationalist movements, citing the idea of returning to the medieval past when things were much better for us specifically. Like, for example, a lot of German nationalists will point to this idea of their nation being the barrier and the sturdy and stalwart defenders of Western civilization from the barbaric Eastern hordes, or from the Jews, uh, from places like Poland. The most intimidating name ever. And this goes back as far as the Battle of Tours, where Germanic peoples fought against the Moors and won despite all odds and founded the Holy Roman Empire. And a lot of them used stories of the hero Sigurd, a hyper-masculine, super-buff, extremely powerful, extremely German ancient warrior as the model for their nationalism, being both a dragon slayer and a king killer. However, he is also a rapist, uh, because the female warrior woman romance partner they has was married off to another man, uh, so he overpowered and raped her while disguised as her husband. Yeah, and that that's, that's a story that in the 1930s, the Nazis used as a good thing. Anyways, uh, but using the UK as another example, they use both King Arthur and the Roman general Brutus as the basis and legitimacy to colonize, as the basis and legitimacy for colonization, brutalizing natives, and just generally being dickheads of the Europeans. With the idea that King Arthur is a just and rightful king that conquered the Isles and ruled as a kind man until he was betrayed by his closest friend and wife. Wow, love uh, woman hate and nationalist propaganda. Who fucking knew? And Brutus, because it establishes them as a true successor to Rome. I mean, even the U.S. has gotten in on this, claiming stuff like a border wall being akin to the walls of a fortress, and the use of medieval tactics and torture, whatever the fuck that means, on immigrants. And the reason? Well, Ever since Manifest Destiny, America has used, the propaganda, has used the propaganda that people from Mexico and South America are like the unwashed hordes coming to destroy our land of the free, while more modern Islamophobia and racism towards Arabic people has caused this to double down, saying that Islamic extremists are also coming over the border. Which, both aren't true. In any way. Obviously. We use this medievalism because it captures the imagination and dog whistles exactly what they mean while still having plausible deniability. Uh, what they mean, by the way, is a protecting wasp lifestyle. But this reminds me. The last myth to cover before we get into the history, then very quickly talk about what to do about this, is the mythologizing of the Crusades. Because ever since the Crusades ended, They've been used by Europeans to be the shining example of European power and the strength of Christendom. 
or if you're on the other side, the barbarity and ruthless evil of Christianity. And both are kind of revisionist history. The one that says that it's like a shining beacon of European strength is more revisionist. Because the medieval period, due to being seen as racially and religiously homogenous, places this conflict as an inevitable one that is either for the glory of Christ and white people or a heroic defense of Islam and the Arab race. And this is the foundation of propaganda surrounding things like Desert Storm, post-9-11 invasions of the Middle East, and was even mirrored by groups like Osama bin Laden's Taliban or ISIS, saying that the West are, at, are back at it again to another crusade. But here's the thing. Calling the crusades either side of the spectrum is wrong. Not morally. I mean, the crusades were morally wrong, but factually wrong. So here's what the crusades actually were. There were campaigns against political and religious rivals where essentially what you do is you take a bunch of people and you whip them up into a religious, zealous fervor, and then you point them in just, like, a general direction of where you want them to go hurt people, and you say, those guys said Jesus is stinky. And then you watch them do the, you know, funny 4chan screech into the Middle East. Or maybe not. Sometimes they they don't make it. Sometimes they get lost and they sack Constantinople. Um, Or they get lost and they end up in Italy, and then they sack a few cities in Italy, and then they all get killed. or they never leave, and they just start squabbling amongst each other and stabbing Jews and burning women at the stake. Uh, there was a Spanish crusade that did that. Uh, sometimes they get lost at sea and just all fucking drown. Um, but, I mean, why did this happen in Europe? Well, I mean, because of the politics of the day that we covered earlier. Um, combined with the stage the Catholic Church was at, where they were really trying to create fervency and also make people think if they're not loyal to the Catholic Church, they're going to hell for sure. That combo really made this possible. But, I mean, yes, the Crusades were exceptionally brutal and bloody and were filled with massacres, and there's evidence of cannibalism happening, not by need, by choice. However, the Crusades did also have moments of honor and also had moments of, like, what seems like love, um, and also allowed for people to interact with a world that they had never known before, talking about Europeans, um, and in the aftermath even allowed for the proliferation of trading, knowledge, goods, and religions. So, the Crusades were, uh, oh boy, oh boy, were they terrible, but the things that they caused to happen later on, some of it was good. Most of it was bad. But, let's go over to the history. Oh, and holy fuck, this is a long one. Don't worry, it's almost, it's almost over. I'm not sure if I'm saying that for me or for you. I'm very tired. Alright, so medievalism really starts in the 1330s, with the concept created by the poet Petrarch, who popularized the idea that Europe had been in the Dark Ages since the 5th century and had just recently left it. 
In the late 14th century, Leonardo Brunei and Flavio Blondo, yeah, I, I, trust me, I think that's how his name is pronounced, uh, separated out time into three chunks, being ancient, medieval, and modern. Uh, where they put the line for modern, by the way? Uh, right in their lifetime, meaning that they uh, counted Petrarch in that shitty, no good, very bad medieval times. Ironic. But now we jump forward all the way to the 16th and 17th centuries. During this time, the Protestants became incredibly influential in the perception of the Middle Ages. See, they believed in this... See, they believed in this three-tier system, and and saw the ancient times as good because it not only had a massive amount of knowledge that they really liked, but also because it was the origins of Christianity and was when Christ was born. However, because they hated the Catholics, they saw the Middle Ages as a corruption of Christian values, and they cited popes acting as kings, rampant pagans, superstition, and worship directly at saintly artifacts, priests not being able to fuck, and yes, that was a real complaint they had, and also the Catholic Church being hypocritical as fuck. Which, my god, if they could only see today. But they also popularized moving up the Middle Ages again, seeing the modern age as starting during the Renaissance. So again, ironic. And while this resentment would stick around, it was almost it would almost do an exact 180 by the 17th and 18th century. In the Age of Enlightenment, they began to view the Middle Ages as the Age of Faith. And unlike the Protestants, they didn't see this as a good thing. Instead, they believed that since the only thing the medieval people cared about was God, uh, they were the opposite of logical and reasonable, and the period was therefore a time of barbarism and ignorance. Just... If you know some of the atrocities happening during the Age of Enlightenment, this is once again ironic. Uh, despite this, in the 1740s, the Gothic Revival begins in England. Uh, this is the resurrection of the Gothic architectural style, which was popular in some parts of the medieval era, uh, especially the late medieval era, which I do want to say is really badass and ominous. Yeah, I, you, have, you have had to have seen this style. Uh, it's in a ton of, like, Victorian-era movies and, like, Tim Burton movies and, like, gothic horror. Uh, but this fashion was taken extremely seriously, in part because it represented a reawakening of the Anglican Church and an ousting of, again, Catholics and Protestants in the UK. Uh, inspired by the artistic movement, Horace Walpole publishes The Castle of Otranano, of Otran... of... Uh, Horace Walpole Horace Walpole publishes the Castle of Otrant of Otranto I I'm bad at pronunciations in 1764 which introduces gothic literature to the world and then when the age of romanticism overtakes the age of enlightenment the artistic movement does a 180 of the hatred of the middle ages prol proliferated up to this point uh, which can really be said to be the origins of medievalism as we know it today. See, they worked to revive medieval philosophy and art, and in novels they took some of these same themes and plot elements to call back to simpler times. 
and also to escape the urban sprawl, industrialization, and rapidly developing capitalism, particularly in writing chivalric romance novels, which use nostalgic and hyper-romantic versions of knights, the Middle Ages, and introduced the damsel in distress trope. But in the 1800s, inspired by the chivalric romance novels, writers like Walter Scott began to write novels such as Ivanhoe and Quinn Derward, and changed how we view the Middle Ages forever. Also in this time, Gothic literature would also go on to influence horror, and novelists like Herman Melville, the Bronte sisters, Oscar Wilde, Bram Stoker, and Robert Louis Stevenson. But this combo caused waves of people translating medieval novels into modern language, like Beowulf, The Lay of the Cid, and The Song of Roland. I'm not... I want to make a joke. I'm not going to. Anyway, uh, Romanticism also influenced the Nazarene movement in Germany, a desire to return to late medieval artwork, focusing on spiritual values rather than, you know, that scandalous modern art showing things like fully clothed consenting adults tenderly kissing each other in a very loving way. And in 1824, William Cobbett writes the writes the history of the Protestant Reformation. In this book, he attacked the Reformation for turning the UK from a very wealthy and unified medieval kingdom into an industrial Victorian hellhole. Which, on one hand, it was a Victorian hellhole. However, on the other hand, calling the UK unified at any point in its history is what we call in the history game a fucking lie. But around the same time in the 1840s, on a wave of medievalist sensibilities, the Parliament in the UK had a lot of buildings and churches across France, the US, and the UK, all either built or updated to be in Gothic style, including Notre Dame. And in 1843, Past and Present by Thomas Carlyle was published, critiquing the Industrial Revolution, and says that we should be running society more in the medieval style, based on cooperation and brotherhood. Rather than, rather than competition and greed. Which, as we've discussed, isn't exactly the truth. I mean, it's, also not healthy, it's also not healthy to fetishize the past like that. Trust me, I constantly want to try to stick my dick into the Middle Ages, but it doesn't work. Anyways, into the mid-1800s, the Middle Ages are co-opted for nationalism. Which basically mixed the Romantic art movement and nationalist propaganda whitewash historical moments to depict and then produce simplified versions of history that depict your culture as the Chad and your enemy's culture as the Soyjack. And this was further accentuated by the rich dressing in medieval clothes to try to recapture the time period and the arts and crafts movement, where many people in the middle and upper class began to style their homes in the more pastoral and simpler traditional craftsmanship of the Middle Ages as opposed to the Gothic style. And from then, the nationalism only grows, eventually becoming a staple of groups like the fucking Nazis and the Ku Klux Klan. Yeah, just like the best that the white people have to offer. And this propaganda also seeps into fiction, with Hollywood in the 1920s adopting the Middle Ages as a genre about 20 years after a lot of other countries began producing films about the Middle Ages meant to power their propaganda machines, particularly about their medieval heroes. I like France creating Joan the Ark, in 1899, which is way early. 
Uh, but this doesn't skyrocket interest in, medie- in medievalism in the same way that the mid-20th century did. When authors of pulp fantasy, leaning on early fantasy authors as well as sci-fi authors, create genres like sword and sorcery, and authors like, obviously, J.R.R. Tolkien, founding high fantasy as a genre. But, I mean, after this, medievalism launches into popular culture, and we get to where we are now. And I know this is kind of an abrupt ending of the timeline, but I'm going to tell you right now, the history from this point is, like, going through year by year and telling you, like, and this country said this thing about this group of people, and it's a shitty thing to say. And they said, well, actually, Charlemagne said that. Like, I'm not... There's things I don't want, I don't want to repeat, and it's... It, it, you will... It will lose its impact for you. But just know, there are a lot of countries since then that have used the medieval period as a basis to be an asshole. So, I mean, with that, we're going to talk about the applications, which is very short. Okay, so this time we're going to tell you how to fight back. Really simply, you educate yourself. Question your biases and learn about the medieval period. From this, you can eventually learn to challenge your own biases like hardcore and fight back against your own dangerous medievalist thoughts. And eventually, I mean, you won't get rid of all of them because some of them are really fucking lodged in there, but, like, you will be able to suppress them enough to where you can, like, actually engage in medievalism safely. For other people, though, it's a bit harder. Because usually, people repeating these ideas fall into two camps. Idiots or assholes. And when I say idiot, I mean dumb about this thing in particular. Someone who just straight up doesn't know what they've heard over and over again isn't the truth, shouldn't be yelled at or condescended to. Generally remind them that the medieval period was a long time span over a wide area and shared just some logical steps. You know, like, it's common for people to think that no one drank water in the Middle Ages and everyone drank alcohol because the water was fucking filthy. And this is entirely untrue. Lead them through the steps. Alcohol dehydrates you. So how did they survive? Was everyone drunk all the time? How would all the water be filthy? Why didn't anyone boil the water? Where could this have come from? Why would someone say this? Because the truth for this particular myth is that it's a misunderstanding. There were at times restrictions or bans on drinking from the River Thames, because it was so full of literal shit. Uh, But that was in London intermittently. Not over the entire 1,000 years or 40,000 square kilometers. If someone is an asshole, you can be more forceful with them. People talking about how the Jews controlled everything since the Middle Ages is just an asshole. You can just say, no, that's not true, as a matter of fact, and then rip into them about some real history and some real shit that happened. This is especially if they refuse to listen to nuance or reason. And eventually, if they just refuse to listen, either disengage or just fucking clown on them, because they deserve it at that point. 
I mean, yeah, I mean, that's that's kind of it. To the soapbox. All right. Well, now how do I feel at the end of this as a medievalist? Tired? I'm exhausted. I. This is a fun episode, but man, did it take a lot out of me. And racism and nationalism and Oh, the fucking sexism that's plagued my hobby for so long that I've kind of been trained to pick it out and ignore it. But still scary and sucks. I mean, because people like white supremacists have taken things like Celtic knots, Norse symbolism, and even the Middle Ages as a whole and made it impossible for people like me who just legitimately love it to be able to, like, you know, wear a Celtic knot in public without people thinking I'm a neo-Nazi. But it's also not surprising that the Middle Ages has been used for propaganda. I mean, think. It's been captured in fantasy for decades. And in the story that we tell each other, and in the story of history we tell each other for centuries, it's mythologized. And a lot of nations have medieval origins, or would like to think that they do, like the U.S. And it's a time that's both vague and specific enough to be able to tell just about any story you can imagine. But, that's combined with the fact that the focus has been political literally since the 1300s. So, you know, really love the period, and if you do as well, I mean, don't let someone gatekeep you. But also, at the same time, be careful about the kinds of people you share a hobby with. And, uh, if you're not that into it, and, you know, listen this far anyways, I mean, thank you so much. That That's really fucking impressive, honestly. I, I nerded out a lot of this episode with uh, some of the some of the things that I knew, but yeah, uh, thank you. Uh, and let's let's get out of here. And holy shit, that is episode seventeen. I am very tired, and I need to get some sleep. Fuck, sometimes I wish I was just a simple herbalist in a little town sometimes. But, anyways, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast feed, like it, leave a review, what you can do on your platform of choice. Uh, send me an email at waytabpods at gmail.com with questions, concerns, opinions, compliments, insults, I'm actually dumb medieval myths you've heard, why the medieval period was exactly the way you imagine it, and why I'm wrong and I can go fuck myself, and anything else you want to tell me. Also, follow me on Twitter at waytat underscore pods for episode announcements. Uh, remember to check out my other podcast, Waytat, where I talk about things that plague the U.S. besides racism and nationalism, but mostly racism and nationalism because, fuck, man, that's, that's really a lot of what's wrong with us. All right. Have a good night. Have fun. Keep writing. And remember, punch a Nazi. This has been Why Aren't You Talking About This Nerd, and I've been your host, William. Good night.